chapter 17, the book of Revelation, chapter 17, as we uh, continue to make our way through this revelation of, um, well, of spiritual realities. Jesus is pulling back the veil between time and eternity and showing us uh, the truth of what, uh, the way things are and what is to come. And we have that this morning again then in chapter 17. Uh, chapter 17 and following through the rest of the book uh, really is dealing more and more with the, uh, the last days, the end time, not just um, the scope of the history of the world in general, but, or the church in general, the history of the church in general, but the last times. Let's pick it up, Revelation chapter 17 beginning at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's ask the Lord's help. Our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a message from your mouth 
to your church. It's a message that you know we need to hear. And so we ask again humbly that your Holy Spirit would help us and teach us and inscribe these truths in our hearts and minds that they would transform our life, that they would mold our desires and dreams, that they would shape the things that we pray for, things that we live for, things that we hope in. I pray, oh God, that you would do this today for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Derek Thomas, in his commentary on this, uh, on this book, says this, the story of redemption is a story of war and hostility. The story of redemption is one of war and hostility, and if you just were to think about what you know about the Bible, a brief survey of biblical history, you'll quickly see that that's true. Way back in the Garden of Eden, uh, the war unfolds as the devil invades the garden and tempts, seduces the woman and uh, the man into sin, and uh, all through Scripture, then uh, the, the devil is at work, and you see the forces of evil in their rage against God. You see it in the Tower of Babel as the nations the peoples come together uh, to oppose God and to make a name for themselves. You see it in the days of Noah when the world is uh, full of wickedness, so much so that God regretted that he had made mankind, all the world, uh, of one mind against the Lord. You see the same in the days of Abraham and Lot. You see the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see this war in the days of Moses as Egypt and Pharaoh are oppressing the people of God and opposing the purposes of God. You see, in, in, in David's life and the kings of Israel, they're constantly fighting with the Philistines. Um, you see it in Daniel's day as the Babylonians are oppressing and persecuting the church. You see it in Jesus' day as the Pharisees are oppressing uh, the truth of the gospel of God. Uh, in all of uh, these stories, in all of these times, you see the devil waging his war against God and against his church. And when John is receiving these visions, that war is continuing primarily through the Roman Empire. Uh, the uh, Roman Empire is, is actively, aggressively at this time persecuting the church. John is in exile uh, on the island of Patmos for his faith. Christians are being uh, captured. They're being burned at the stake. They're being uh, dressed up in animal skins and thrown to wild animals in the gladiator arenas for sport. Uh, they're being imprisoned. Uh, the early church is experiencing the reality of the devil's war against the church. Uh, millions of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing this reality today. And I, uh, I believe that we are seeing the, the, the persecution that's happening all over the world. Uh, I believe those waters are, are beginning to, to spread over into our own, uh, our, own, our own land as we see um, just an incredible um, coalescing of forces who are opposed to God and, and His truth in our day and, and in our land. Uh, the question that that uh, presents to us is this, are we prepared David French, an a, a evangelical Christian, writes for uh, National Review, he, he writes this, in my travels around the country, one thing that has become crystal, one thing has become crystal clear to me. 
Christians are not prepared for the social consequences of the profound cultural shifts we are facing, especially in more secular parts of the nation. They are afraid to say what they believe uh, because they're simply not prepared for any meaningful adverse consequences in their careers or with their peers. <coughs> Excuse me. Christians are, uh, David French says, as he travels the country, Christians are just going quiet because we're afraid of the adverse consequences to our career and uh, in our relationships with peers. Uh, Denny Burke, uh, a pastor, writes this, pastors, are your people prepared? Are, there, are they prepared to lose their jobs for Christ? Are they prepared to be considered social pariahs for Christ? Are they willing to risk their retirement account for Christ? Pastors, are you ready for this? Friends, Jesus is writing this letter to the church in order to prepare us. Whenever Jesus speaks of things that are about to come, things that are difficult, he does so for that, uh, for that purpose. So remember when he told his disciples what was going to happen to him. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the high priest and be put to death. He told them that to prepare them. So when it happened... Um, they, by the Holy Spirit, could remember that, that Jesus had promised it would happen, that these things did not take place by accident, or that this was something the, the sovereign God hadn't foreseen. Jesus was ordering it, commanding and ordaining it. The same when he told his disciples, you're going to be hated, and you're going to be persecuted, and you're going to be brought in front of kings. They're going to hate you. So when it happens, the disciples could realize this is just exactly what Jesus had foretold because Jesus was ordaining and overseeing the events. And that's the same that we have here. Jesus wants the church to realize the, the reality and power of evil, but to then recognize that that power is under his power and Jesus conquers. Uh, Derek Thomas quotes uh, from Lutheran theologian Gustav Allen how important this is. Uh, Gustav Allen writes this, I am persuaded that no form of Christian teaching has any future before it unless it can keep steadily in view the reality of the evil that is in the world and go meet that evil with a battle song of triumph. That the only Christianity that will stand is the Christianity that, that recognizes the evil and rejoices in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the Lord is teaching us this morning. The reality of evil, the certainty of victory. And so in these last chapters of the book of Revelation... We're going to see those things unfolding. Chapter 17, the reality of evil, the prostitute, the beast, and the war that they wage against the church. We're going to see in chapter 18 the judgment of the prostitute and the wailing, the universal wailing in the world as, as they grieve the loss of what they loved. Uh, chapter 19, we get to the triumphal um, Song of the saints as they are gathered to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 20 and 21, the new Jerusalem is revealed and the invitation is given to, the, uh, to sinners to come and, and drink of the water of life. That's how the book ends. It, it, it ends very, very well. Well, the, uh, the, this morning, as we come to chapter 17, we 
uh, we'll f- we've come to this woman, the prostitute, and, and there are uh, actually in chapters 17, this vision uh, is contrasted with the vision in chapter 21, where you have two contrasting women and two contrasting cities. Uh, you have the, the two women, the great prostitute, chapter 17, verse 1, seated on many waters. And then in chapter 21, verse 9, the same angel, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Two contrasting women, uh, the prostitute and the bride. And there are two contrasting and opposing cities. You have the city of Babylon here in um, chapters eight, 17 and again in 18. And then you have these, the new Jerusalem, the city that comes down from God out of heaven, dressed as a bride adorned for her husband. And so Jesus wants us to have fixed in our mind these two contrasting realities, this fundamental divide between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, between the citizens of Babylon, which is here on earth, and citizens of the new Jerusalem, which is of heaven. Jesus wants us specifically to see the purposes of God unfolding in human history. He wants us to see the destiny of these cities and these women. His purpose, God's purpose, is to judge his enemies and to redeem and glorify his bride. That's what God is about in these chapters and in the world. And so uh, let's just begin. This morning we're going to look first at the great prostitute. That's um, the majority of the chapters taken up with the prostitute and the beast on which she rides. Notice first her immorality. Uh, John, uh, John has a vision and an angel tells him before he gives John the vision, he says, this is what you're going to see. I'm going to show you this, this prostitute. A great prostitute with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual, sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Um, perversion is the theme. Five times in these first five verses, some version of the word porne, from which we get porn pornography, is used. Sexual perversion. Her name is pornes. The kings of the earth commit Porneusan with her. The, uh, the world drinks the wine of her perneas. It's perverse. It's sexual perversion. But it's not just or only sexual perversion. In, in the Bible, physical perversion, sexual perversion, is the outward sign of the inner perversion of idolatry. Uh, people whore their souls before they whore their bodies. And, 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 and sexual liberality is just one of the fruits of an idolatrous spirit. So when Israel was um, worshiping pagan gods, God commits them of adultery, spiritual adultery. In Romans chapter 1, God reveals his wrath concerning the... Um, 
spiritual perversion of people. They would not honor God as God or give thanks to him, but worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That fundamental idolatry that's woven in the DNA of fallen men and women, that spiritual perversion God judges by manifesting that inward perversion in external sexual immorality. And men and women exchange natural desires for unnatural ones, of violating their own bodies, manifesting the violation they've already done to their soul. And so we need to see, as we, as we think about the great prostitute, not simply sexual perversion, but spiritual perversion. And that spiritual perversion bears sexual immorality, but it also bears other perverse fruit. One of the key being materialism. You're going to see that, uh, we'll see that clearly in chapter 18, when the prostitute is judged and Babylon has fallen, the, the merchants of the world are uh, prominent in their grieving because they lost their access to riches and to stuff. You see that, um, that materialistic perversion already here in chapter 17. Notice, uh, she's arrayed in purple, the color of, of, of wealth and royalty, and, and robed in scarlet. That's the color of the red dragon. She looks like her master. Uh, she's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, representing material wealth, earthly splendor. She holds in her hand a golden cup. It's a sign of opulence. If you're drinking from golden cups, you're doing very well. But that cup is full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Uh, the prostitute is the spirit of the age as it exalts in material access and physical immorality, sexual immorality. The prostitute... Um, Eric Alexander, I was listening to one of his sermons. Great. If you ever get a chance to listen to, uh, uh, he's retired now, but uh, um, uh, served in the UK for, for many, many years. Uh, wonderful, wonderful preacher. And uh, he was preaching on this text, and uh, he said, during the 1950s, many people identified the great prostitute with communism, as they saw just the havoc um, happening in Russia and China, other parts of the world where communism was coming into its power. But he, but he said, and I think he's absolutely right, he said, this definition strikes me as much more descriptive of Western capitalism. Western capitalism. This, com this combination of materialism and eroticism. Of, of, of this passion for things, this love of stuff, and this giving over to sexual perversion. Uh, we don't usually think of materialism as and evil like sexual sin. In fact, I, I wonder if, 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 if you would just ask your children to uh, define materialism if they'd be able to do that. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a category we're, we're used to talking about, thinking about, and yet we're completely caught up in it. You see, material wealth is just another form of spiritual perversion. This, this, no, the, the desire for material, the love of money, right? Root of all evils. The love for stuff, the, the, the need for stuff, for things, possessions. It's just another way of ignoring God, of serving the created thing rather than the creator. 
It's another perversion. The woman, the prostitute, is full of it. Well, who is she? We're told her identity, verse 5. On her forehead, that's where things are defined. Remember, God's people are defined by the name written on their forehead, the name of Jesus and of God. Um, On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Now, in the first century, people would have recognized, the church would have recognized the symbolism here. Babylon, of course, was the great city of Assyria, the capital city, the world power at that time. Babylon was noted in church history as the persecutor of of God's people as they brought Israel into captivity. Um, But Babylon is the symbol, the name that stands for Rome, the Roman Empire. Rome is the world power of the day, and Rome was the persecutor of God's people. It was happening all around them. Rome was the one speaking blasphemous names as the Caesars insisted on being uh, worshipped, and temples are built for that purpose. They take on the names of God. And so in 1 Peter chapter 5.13, Peter says, writes this, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. In other words, the church in Rome sends you greetings. This association of Babylon with Rome is also seen in verse 9. If you have your Bible, you can see there in verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, seven hills on which the woman is seated. Well, Rome, as you might know, was famously known as the city of seven hills. And so the early church saw Rome as Babylon, the great, wealthy, blasphemous prostitute who persecutes the church. And, um, and while as, as this, so as this vision is being given, early, the first century Christians would be, oh yeah, we know this, we know this prostitute. We know who Babylon is. This is what's happening. But um, what does this mean for us now that Rome is some nice ruins you can go visit, right, in Italy? At least the empire is no longer. Well, uh, while, while Rome clearly is, is intended, the symbol is not exhausted with the passing away of the Roman Empire. This prostitute lives on. Babylon continues. She is the spirit of this evil age. So John will write in his first epistle, chapter 2, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Friends, it is so important for us to increasingly be able to sense the spirit of our age and test those spirits, and to realize that the, the cultural waters that we swim in are not from God. That, that the things that the world lauds, um, money, power, sex, fame, position, beauty, things, John says that those things, the love and the passion for those things is not from the Father. It's not from the father. Then who's it from? It's from the mother of prostitutes. The mother of earth's abominations. It's from, it's from this, great, this great prostitute. It's from the beast that she rides on. It's from the devil that she serves. 
This world is not a friend to grace to help us on to God. No matter how catchy the tune, no matter how cute the turned lyric, no matter how much you like the story, enjoy the movie, love the TV series, we need to wake up. Jesus wants us to see the world the way he sees the world, that the spirit of the age is not from the Father. It's not your home. This uh, woman rides a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. It's the same beast we saw back in chapter 13. I won't go into all of that just to remind you that the beast is an ally of the devil, the great red dragon. So the spirit of this world is formed in the image and driven by the power of the beast. Jesus wants us to see this. He wants us to to see then how ripe this world is then for judgment. How deeply offensive the spirit is to God. I I just sense in in the church today this this incredible, and I'm sure it's, 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 uh, the church has always battled this. I'm not saying this is new. But we're so comfortable in a cultural context that, that, that is not from the Father. Uh, people around the world, we pray for them as they're being persecuted. They beg God's mercy on us as we are being seduced. Her influence, thirdly, Her influence is pervasive, universal, and seemingly inescapable. She's seated on many waters, which in verse 15 we're told is the peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. She has dominion over the kings of the earth, 18. This this spirit is pervasive and seems to be inescapable. There's no corner of creation you can go to. West Michigan, right, is not uh, somehow outside of her domain. A safe place where you can escape this prostitute. And she's so impressive, so powerful, so alluring that she causes the people of the world to marvel. Verse 8, the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the the book of life, they will marvel to see the beast. They, They will be astonished at how powerful, how alluring, how sophisticated this spirit is. How impressively and quickly she moves. Uh, you can read articles uh, today of, of, of people who have no love for God. People who profess to be atheists. And yet they marvel at the speed with which our culture is shifting. The foundations being shaken. And the, the new uh, sexual religion is sweeping over the country. People around the world are marveling at this. I heard from someone recently who said he had a conversation with a friend in Great Britain who, who said, I always thought Great Britain would be about 10 years ahead of the United States in terms of secularizing and, and apostatizing. He says, I, I, think you've, I think the United States has managed to push on ahead. People marvel. It's astonishing. Who would have thought? Who would have imagined? And John marvels. Verse uh, Seven, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. End of verse six there. Now he's marveling not with admiration, but with fear and trepidation. How in the world is this little church going to be able to stand against such an impressive power? She's, she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, she takes as she pleases. 
So how's the world going to stand? How's the church going to stand against her? The world loves her, applauds her, marvels with amazement and astonishment and approval, and, and, and she rides a beast that seems all-powerful. But the, the angel responds to John with the mystery. That's the second point. Why do you marvel, the angel says? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Now, as, I've, as we've noted before, when the Bible talks about mystery, it does not mean the word the way that we mean the word. When we say it's a mystery, we mean we don't understand it. We don't get it, right? Uh, we can't figure it out. Like, like what happens to missing socks? Well, I mean, where do they go? And yet they're gone forever, right? Have you ever found a, all the missing socks? You never do. It's a mystery to us. Um, but that's not the way the word's meant here. Mystery here is meant something that used to be um, unknown, but now has been revealed, has been, mani- has been made manifest. So the angel says to John, don't marvel. Let me tell you what this is about. And there's, there are two things that are being made clear in these final verses of the certainty of battle and the certainty of victory. So, first of all, the certainty of a final battle. This, this text seems very clear to, to say that there was going to be an intense, unified War against the church at the end of history. That, that, that war has always been going on, but there's going to be an intensified, unified attack against Christ and his people at, at the end of the world. L- let me just quickly show you some of the evidences. Verse 8, the beast was, is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. In other words, the devil was He was at loose in the world. Jesus comes and and the gospel is preached. And Jesus says, I I saw the devil fall like lightning from heaven. The devil is defeated. He was not, is not for for a time. But he is about to to rise from the bottomless pit. We've we've seen that before. There's going to be a resurgence for a short period of time. Uh, Verse 10 speaks of an eighth king that has not yet come, but he is coming. Verse 12 speaks of ten kings who do not yet have power, but they're going to receive authority from God, remember, together with the beast for one hour. Uh, They're going to have one mind to do the will of the beast, verse 13. What are they going to do together? Verse 14, they're going to attack the lamb. They will make war on the lamb. That's what they're going to do. Jesus wants his friends to understand That though the spirit of persecution and oppression has always been in the world, there will be a final unified manifestation of that spirit for a brief time, one hour. We are not told when this will take place, right? If Jesus thought we needed to know, he would have told us. Need to know basis. He doesn't tell us when it will take place. The reason he doesn't is so that we might be prepared at all times. He's told us what we do need to know. A battle is coming. A great battle is coming. And Jesus wants us to be ready. He wants us to prepare. And the time to prepare is now. If you wait until it's on your doorstep, you might not be ready. The time to prepare is now. 
But he wants us also to be absolutely confident as we prepare. So the, the victory of Christ, the text is saturated with, with the good news. Maybe you missed it as we were reading it through, but just, just look at here, all the promises of the devil's demise. Verse 8, the beast will rise from the bottomless pit to go where? To destruction. Verse 11, exactly the same words. The, the, the beast rises and goes to destruction. Verse 14, they will make war on the lamb, and then what? The lamb will conquer them. Verses 16 and 17 were shown even that God uses the, the, enemy, uh, the enemies of God to go to war against themselves um, so that God's purposes are being fulfilled. That's verses 16 and 17. For God put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. You see, so, so not only does Jesus win... He wants us to see that every event in this battle is the work of his sovereign hand. That's what Peter joyfully preached uh, when he preaches the first Pentecost sermon. That Jesus was crucified, yes, exactly as God had purposed and planned. That God in the defeat of Christ on a cross was conquering his enemies perfectly in accordance with his sovereign purpose. And we have to have that mindset. So when we see the world seducing, and we see the, the coercion and the oppression, we know what's going on. Okay, the beast is making war on the saints. Yes, he is. But every single event in that war is, is unfolding in according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1 verse 11. Let me read that again. Every single event is according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right? If that was a psalm, there'd be Selah. Amen. Period. Exclamation point. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Now, how can we be certain? Because, brothers and sisters, we are going to need to be certain. Because to our human eyes, this will not look like it's true. To our human eyes, it will look like the forces of evil are conquering the Lamb. That's what it will look like. Professing Christians will apostatize. Pastors will apostatize. They'll walk away. Churches will close. It will look like Christianity is being swept from the face of the earth. That's what it will look like. It will seem as though the lamb is actually losing. So... So how can we be certain that he isn't? And the text tells us. The lamb will conquer them for, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. You see, this is not a contest between good and evil as two equal forces and they're battling it out and we hope that Jesus at the end gets a victory. This is Jesus reigning at the right hand of God as Lord of lords and King of kings, 
perfectly carrying out all his purposes, all the purposes of God in the world. Remember, this is the lamb who took the scroll that was sealed containing all the purposes of God for human history, and the lamb is unfolding those purposes. So the persecution is not an accident. It is not an unfortunate but necessary byproduct of the gospel age. It's God's purpose, his sovereign purpose, that the people of Christ, the people who follow Jesus will follow him also in in his suffering, and that Jesus is lovingly, knowingly, perfectly accomplishing all that he wills and chooses in everything we read in these chapters. And, and Jesus wants us to see that so that we recognize, you see, that our world is not in the hands of chaotic, demonic forces. Our world is actually in the hands of a sovereign Lord, King Jesus. And the text wonderfully shows that not only does he have the victory, but there are people along with him. Notice, those with him are, are, are marked by three words. They are called, and they are chosen, and they are faithful. And the first two seals the third, called and chosen, of course, refer to those, the, the, the sovereign act of God where before the foundation of the world, he specifically called and chose a people for himself, name by name. And so if you're a Christian, that means that before this world was formed, God knew you, God set his love upon you, and that he chose you and called you to belong to Jesus Christ. That's how Paul refers to the New Testament church in Romans chapter 1, verse 6. To those called to belong to Jesus. It's unbelievable. That's who you are. Chosen and called by God to belong to Jesus Christ and to be heirs with Christ of a new heaven and a new earth. That's who you are. Your identity is not your job. Your identity is not your marital status. Your identity is not your physical health. Your identity is not your retirement account. Your identity, whether you live or die, is called chosen. And because you see you're called and chosen, you will be faithful. The text says so. Called, chosen, Faithful, Jesus will not lose any of his elect. The promise, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. He will do what? He will sanctify you completely so that your whole spirit, soul, and body will kept blameless at the coming of the Lord. Friends, is that what you want? Is that what you want Jesus, sanctify me, the whole of me, my whole spirit, my whole soul, my whole body, that I may be kept blameless, not without sin, but blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, bearing the fruits of his work of grace within me. That's what God promises to do. As we ask, as we wait, as we call, right? It's an, it's, an, it's an unbelievable thing, friends, to be a Christian. It's an unbelievable thing. Because, you see, then that means that no matter how the devil rages, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And nothing, not persecution, not nakedness, not danger, not sword, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are victorious in him. I want you to imagine if there was a football game that mattered a great deal to you. <laughs> Your favorite team is going to play the, um, the, their arch rival, maybe, maybe a team that wears scarlet, which is, of course, the color of the red dragon. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's a team you haven't beaten since 2011. And for some reason, you're not able to watch the game live, but you record it, maybe record it with several machines so you don't lose it, and, and you're racing uh, home after your meeting or wherever you were, and your friend texts you with the final score. But it's good news. Uh, your team actually won. And not only did they win, but they did so with the dramatic, devastating four touchdowns in the last quarter come from behind, uh, just a miraculous victory. So now imagine you're, you're home and you're on the couch and you, and you turn on the game. And the first three quarters are unbelievably awful. Uh, the other team scores at will. Uh, your team just blunders, can't get, not get out of its own way. The game is, uh, it seems completely out of reach by halftime. And by the third quarter, you can tell that the announcers are wishing it was over because they really don't have anything more to say about how wonderful the opposing team is. But you know something. You know the final score. And so every time the other team scores, you wince a little, but it's, you know it's just for a little while. Uh, you know the final score. And every time you see them celebrating and laughing and high-fiving, uh, so confident of their victory, you smile to yourself because you know the final score. And when the announcers close out that third quarter, just gushing over the opposing team, guaranteeing that this game is over, you cannot wait for the fourth quarter because you know the final score. Friends, that's how Jesus calls us to live in the world. We know the final score. We need to be ready, but we don't need to be afraid. The prophet Daniel had a, a very similar vision to John's in, in Daniel chapter 7, and he was alarmed and anxious. Notice he says in chapter 7, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me, and I approached one of those who stood, stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but... The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That's the final score. That's the final score. Jesus promises it. We shall reign with him. Friend, uh, let me just close with this. This is a day of grace. You are either today a member of that kingdom of God or you are a member of the kingdom of Babylon. You're not somewhere in between. Do you know which kingdom you belong to? You can. It's the most critically important thing in your entire existence. You can know. If you've never before, maybe you've just been raised in the church and you sort of assume that, yes, I'm a Christian. If you've never got down on your knees and confessed your sin 
and called out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it. Because the Bible says you will be saved. That you will have passed over from death to life. The end is coming. The battle is near. It's time to get ready. Amen. Oh God in heaven, Lord, you know our hearts and you know what's coming. Jesus, I thank you that you tell us so that we can prepare. We can confess our sin. We can commit ourselves to watchfulness and prayer. We can give our lives to things that, that matter, eternal things, love for our neighbor, faithfulness in our marriages, purity in our lives, that we battle for holiness so that, Lord, we will have the strength to endure and stand as we experience the fellowship of our God. Father, you know every heart here, and I, I pray, Lord, that if there be any here this morning who are not ready, that you, by your grace, would, Lord, give a repentant heart and a believing faith and then the Holy Spirit assurance that though we are weak, though we are, we're baby Christians, we're small, we're young in the faith, or we've been foolish in our faith, Yet, Lord God, because Jesus is king, because he is Lord, as we cast ourselves upon him and commit our life to him and trust in him, we can have absolute assurance today that we will not be shaken and that we can join with the saints in the songs of the redeemed. Heavenly Father, uh, please, by the spirit of Jesus Christ, bless us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with a hymn of faith. O church, arise. Jesus Christ, our captain, has won the victory. Let's stand together and sing.